0: Go with me before to God in prayer and ask for his work in our midst. We pray with me. Almighty God, we come before you as your body coming to the head. We come to you as your bride coming to our groom who is eager to listen to us. And we come before you making our requests to you and praying on behalf of our church today. Father, we pray today for individual members of our body this morning. We remember that Paul says we are individually members of one body. And so, Father, as we daily pray for one another specifically, we do that even today. Father, we pray for members like Kevin Rummel, Father, we thank you for his retirement this week, and we ask that you would guide him as he uses this season of his life for your glory. May he love and lead his family well. Father, we pray for Ruth Page, and we thank you for her ministry of prayer among us and her ministry with our children. We pray that Ruth would be faithful to the end. Father, we pray for Carson Piercefield, and the example he is to many of us of genuine love for Christ. Father, would you be near to Carson this week as he takes his classes? May he be a a clear and kind witness of Christ. May he love his family well. Father, we pray for members like Ruby Gowie, who is currently homebound. Father, as she is apart from us physically, we pray that you would give her unusual grace and kindness. We pray that her faith in Christ would not waver, and that she would commune with Christ each day in the word and in prayer. Father, we pray for church members who are among us who lead us, like Pastor Caleb. Help our brother Caleb to lead Leah and Jane and Beau and Duke well. Help him to teach our students and us faithfully. Help him this evening as he opens your word to us in our Sunday evening service. Fill him with your spirit, O God. Help him to keep watch over himself and over the whole flock this week. Father, even our whole flock is made of many individuals, and we pray that we would grow together as one body. Preserve our unity. Father, this month as our church Studies what your word says about the church, we especially pray that you would guard us from any sort of superiority or pride in our midst. Father, may we be profoundly humble, even as we're also clear and confident in what you say about the church. Father, may we not confuse confidence in your word with pride in ourselves. Father, as we go now to your word, we ask that you would do supernatural work among us. Father, I am not worthy. I am not fit, not able in my own strength to adequately express the glories of this passage. Father, your word is living and active, and we rely on that today. Would you please, oh God, We ask you, would you please open our eyes? Would you work in us even now, oh God? Would you meet with your people now, we pray, as you have promised to do, work in us? We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Life is a miracle. I'm thinking about life itself. Uh, the ability to be a living being and have consciousness. It's miraculous, miraculous really. It's supernatural if you think about it. I, I mean, just think of any example of a new baby. Maybe Neely Mercy, Duke Bachelor, Jubilee Durr, Noah Cortada. Or, or perhaps think of the birth of your own child. Anyone who has witnessed the the growth of a baby in the womb, which is being then being born as a living and functioning and breathing human being, knows that the mystery of life is no ordinary or simple accomplishment. It is a miracle. Even scientists can describe what's happening, and yet so much is still unknown about how a living being comes into existence with consciousness and awareness and vitality. How does this miracle work? How are people given life? Today, as we begin our series in the month of September on the local church, I want to reflect on a similar related question. How are we given spiritual life? How is it that a group of people would become a spiritually alive group of people? Uh, what an appropriate place to begin, is it not, as we think about our body? I mean, if you visit any church today that is, that is growing or that is even wanting to grow, this question always lies somewhere in the background of the scene. Even when it's not clearly being discussed, the answer is being offered by the actions that we pursue. In every church, there is a philosophy of how spiritual life and spiritual growth takes place. Just think of any church that's growing. Perhaps people are coming in, there's a a flurry of excitement, people's lives are perhaps being changed. Well, behind the scenes, in every spiritual gathering, there is an assumption of how life is coming about. So for many, the mantra of our day is that spiritual life takes root across the people by prioritizing relevance and connecting with people where they're at. Now, we would be foolish to deny the importance of being relevant as we seek to grow our church. After all, I am speaking in English right now for a reason. But is that the center? Is relevancy the... the, the seed that germinates life in the people of God. Similarly, similarly for some, the, the pervading belief seems to be that people come alive through, through impressive visuals, perhaps. Dynamic video clips, uh, a smooth production, an object lesson, a drama. Perhaps watching a compelling mini-series drama of Jesus' life, which makes his story come alive to us. After all, a picture is worth a thousand words, and images are compelling, so video, literally millions of image frames put together, is not even more so. So if we want to see our church come alive, many would say we should better use the visual arts. None of us, by the way, would deny the, the beauty of what God has allowed us to see in his creation and the gifts that he's given us. But is what we see with our eyes is that the seed that germinates spiritual life. For others, an impressive show of the miraculous is at the heart of creating spiritual life. After all, Christ worked through impressive shows of miracles. We're seeing that in the book of Luke. After all, many times in the New Testament, the message of the gospel as it went out into new places was vindicated by signs But is this what gives spiritual life? Is this the primary way that God works to create life in us? When we think about our church, how does God give life to a people? How will God create in you spiritual life and grow that life? How does God do that not only in one person but in an entire body? Did you know that God's word is not silent on the answers to these questions? He speaks not only to how we should live as a church, He speaks not only to how we should organize ourselves specifically as a church, He speaks not only to what we should believe as a church and what we should do to obey Him as a church, but God speaks very clearly how He does. The impossibly miraculous work of creating life and growing life in us. If you haven't already, open your Bibles this morning to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel is that long book in the second half of your Old Testament. If you're here and you're newer to reading the Bible, you can just kind of open up halfway through the book and and finger to your right a little bit. You'll happen across this book. uh, Ezekiel will be in chapter 37. This comes from the story of God's people uh, before the New Testament. So before Jesus came is this story of this prophet. And as we look through this story that we just heard read to us, my goal my goal is to astound you with a very simple message. I will receive no rewards today for some complex, innovative new insight. I'm aiming for the opposite. I'm aiming to instill in you confidence. That's what I'm going for today. I'm going for confidence in your heart of something that most of you probably already believe. It's so primary. It's so fundamental. It's so obvious across all of God's word that perhaps you'll wonder why we would take a week to just pause and think on this again. But I want to give you some bedrock confidence in the bottom of your soul that burns white hot with this conviction. Here it is. God's spirit works through God's word to give life to God's people. It's not on the overhead. Let me say it again for you in case you're taking notes. God's spirit works through God's word to give life to God's people. That's what I'm out to prove today. So do you want spiritual life? Do you want to be in a church that is just flowering with true life, true vitality? Then let's pay attention. Uh, in the passage, we'll see the, the need for, of God's people, the, the desperation of the situation, the power of God, and then how God works. We'll come back to these points as we work through the text. But first, just the, the need of God's people, which we'll see just very briefly in the context here. You see, the context of Ezekiel is that the people of God, they are off in exile. They are taken from their their homeland of Israel to captivity in Babylon. They are being disciplined right now. This is where we find them. And it is painful for God's people. Yet God has promised to work in his people. He's promised to work for the sake of his holy name. Not first for them, but that, so that they would showcase his glory. In fact, if you just look back in the chapter before, in, verse, in chapter 36, verse 22, we read, Thus says the Lord God, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. It's going to show his glory, and it's going to do this by giving them his spirit. He'll take out their, their hearts of, of stone, which stone does not beat very well, doesn't pump blood very well. He's going to replace that with a heart of flesh. Look down at verse 26 of chapter 36. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules God will give them what they need they need a new heart and so here God is looking forward to the new covenant the gift of the Holy Spirit that will one day be offered freely to all people all who come to Christ And considering that God's people are being offered this here in captivity in Babylon, this this promise is just utterly amazing. They need God to work. And he promises that he will. And yet this promise leaves questions hanging. How can this be true? How will God work in in the midst of their current hopelessness? How will God act? We're going to see some of this answer to this hopelessness in chapter thirty-seven. Here we move to chapter thirty-second and we thirty-seven, and we see, secondly, just the desperation of the the situation that they're in, and we see this through this imagery that God's word speaks to us that we hear. Look at verses one through three. The hand of the Lord was upon me. Me being the, uh, the prophet Ezekiel, who's writing this book, who's also in exile. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were dry. They were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, God, you know. So to teach this prophet, God takes Ezekiel on a vision. And he sets him down uh, into the middle of this valley. And, and the significance of this probably wouldn't have been lost on the prophet. The valley in exile would have been the exact opposite of meeting with God on the mountain in the promised land. In fact, in chapter 40, you can see uh, ezekiel has a different vision where he's no longer in exile he's in the the promised land and there at the beginning of the chapter he's on a very high mountaintop meeting with god but here it's the opposite he's literally down in a valley low in a place of death and that's what the prophet sees he sees death a valley filled with bones i mean this is gruesome really it's a bit of a morbid scene for this, this man of God to see. The, ba- the bones were, were there, the text says, on the surface of the valley. So the picture is that there was, there was no proper burial for these that died. They all died so quickly that there was no one even to come and bury those who had died before them. They're all, all the bones are just laying, decomposing, decaying there in this valley. And for the prophet, this would have been immediately a place for him to be ritually unclean among these unburied corpses. And the valley was full of them. They, they weren't new. They were dry. They had decomposed long ago. And they weren't just dry. They were very dry. They, so you likely brittle or bleached bones, disconnected from their bodies, no longer held together as skeletons. I mean, these were very dead, dead people. Like super dead. This was a scene of ugly death. And it seems God didn't want the prophet to miss this. (laughs) Verse 41, verse 1, he he sets them down in the middle of the valley. Verse 2, then God led him around the bones. (laughs) So it seems that God took him on a tour. An inspection just to see, to solidify this in the, the prophet's mind to, for him to see how devastating this situation is. To be clear, there is no chance of finding life here. After this tour, God asks the prophet just an incredible question. He says, Son of man, can these bones live? If anyone other than God had asked this, the answer would be to laugh in their face. This is not like those who are on the verge of dying in a hospital bed and the family's asking, will they pull through? No, one thing is known here. There's just no hope for this group of people. In fact, this question forces us to just see their inability. The dead have complete inability on their own. They are unable to do anything. They are gone and done. They are lifeless, powerless, inept. It's not just a problem of sincerity for these bones. It's not like they're, they're just not trying hard enough. It's not that these bones needed to, to do their best to get themselves together here. No, they're dead. Let me just pause here, by the way, and just take a, a sidebar. You see, this passage is firstly talking about Israel and how God will bring life to them. But I can't help but think of this imagery and how The Word of God uses it. And that perhaps there are some here in a similar place that are apart from God, that are not yet Christians. The Bible says that all of us before God are dead in our sins. All of us have sinned against God, which has brought physical and spiritual death into our world. And all of us on our own are unable, completely unable to save ourselves. We are hopeless and helpless. The Bible says that in this state of rebellion rather than leave us as we are god has sent his son jesus christ to come and live the perfect life that we can't live to die in our place on the cross to rise from the dead so that anyone would who trust in him would have eternal life would have new life would have true life let me just encourage you if you're here today as a visitor. And this is a new story. That just right now, this, this story that I'm explaining to you, we Christians, we call this the gospel, the message of what we've done against God and what God has done to save us in Jesus Christ and how now we can trust in him by faith. If this is new for you, let me encourage you, this is a great place for you to start learning about God, to explore the message of the gospel more, to talk to somebody even today and to see how it is that God even begins to relate to us through Christ. But let's go back to that valley now, church. Let's go back to that place where God is asking Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? Well, if you're asking the bones, the answer is no. These bones cannot live. But if it's God, if it's Yahweh that is asking, oh, well, that changes everything. Ezekiel responds with what seems to be some humble deflection. Oh, Yahweh, you know. So, in the face of a spiritual hopelessness and death, life is God's prerogative. You know. And here's the pattern we see. The need of God's people, the desperation of the situation, and now the power of God. Notice the power of God. You see in verses 3 through 6... Uh, God explains what he's about to do, and he tells this prophet to prophesy. As we come to verse 7, we read, So I I prophesied, as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together. Bone to its bone. This this word in verse 7, behold. It's like saying, uh, take notice. Hold up. Look what happened. At first, there was this sound, this rattling across the valley. I mean, this is the, the stuff of Indiana Jones, but real. Uh, where the climactic uh, attention is, is being drawn. We're being pulled in. And this noise is starting to happen. Uh, a Rattling is happening. I mean, imagine you're there. Imagine you're there in the middle of this valley and looking all around you and seeing bones everywhere. And then on their own, they start to rattle and move and come together one by one, bone by bone, starting to form skeletons. Verse 8, And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. Now not only are skeletons forming, But the flesh was being formed on them Ligaments and and muscles and skin Others have pointed out This is really the the reverse of decomposition It's being reversed here It's it's the decomposing process Turned around on itself It's resurrection happening in real time In front of Ezekiel's eyes Then we get to the end of verse 8 but there was no breath in them. He said to me, Prophesy to the breath, Prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come for the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So apparently they were killed, they were slain. This was a great mass of people. So I prophesied, and as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So no longer are these merely bodies that are being resurrected, but now life comes into them. They're alive. They're breathing again. They're standing on their feet. They're back from the dead. Now the stages here, it's fascinating. You notice there seemed to be this this two-stage development. If you notice, first God powerfully rebuilt their bodies, the form, and then he gives breath and life to them. I think the reason for this is merely to hearken back to the other time in Scripture that we see a similar pattern. Back at the beginning of creation, when God created man, do you remember he, he formed man from the dust of the ground, and then he breathed life into him. So this here is meant to be this, this vivid picture for us of recreation, of God doing the work that God does in giving life. And here, he's doing it corporately. Verse 11, he's raising up the whole house of Israel. He's taking a nation that was cut off, that had hope lost, and he's bringing them back into their land. The near fulfillment of this is speaking of Israel's redemption. This is, first of all, thinking of how Israel as a nation would be brought out of captivity, out of exile. And he's giving Ezekiel, in verse 12, this, this similar, vivid picture of people then coming out of their graves. I'm not going to spend too much time on this second picture, but this, this scene is a, a second vision that seems to be this graveyard, and people are, are coming out of their graves, out from the dead. But twice, if you notice, down to verse 12 and 13, God calls those he resurrects, My people. And every promise in these verses includes a you, which is a plural you. He says, you all shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves. You all shall live. I will raise you all from your graves. Friends, this is the power of God to bring life to his people. As God's people were cut off, hopeless, in exile... God would resurrect them by his power and his spirit to bring them as a people together back to life. And the vivid illustration is clear of what he's doing. And the promise of how this will be ultimately fulfilled is also clear. There at the end of the passage, you see this language that's so similar to chapter 36, what I started with. In verse 14, he says... I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. Hearkening back to this ultimate promise of life in the new covenant, when he gives his spirit, his Holy Spirit, to his church. So today, as we think about our local church, I want to pause, and I want to make sure you see clearly the how behind this story. How is it that God works to give life to his people? We'll come back up at verse 3 and following. I intentionally went quickly over it. He said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord God, you know, verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones. The word prophesy literally means to say, speak the word of God over these bones. Say to them, say, speak, say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you. Verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. Now, the original hearers of this passage would likely have been surprised that that God would have taken this prophet out to this grotesque scene of death and and were stunned to see God's power to miraculously resurrect this entire army of the dead through his spirit. But there's another shock here. Did you see the strangeness of this command that starts it all? Go back to imagining that scene like you were a moment ago. Imagine again you're standing there in the middle of the, the valley covered with bones and imagine God saying to you to speak his word over this, these bones. To, to, to talk to them. Talk to the bones. Say, hey, dry bones, listen. I'm speaking to you. What, what strangeness is this? How awkward this must have felt to, to raise your voice and, and call out as if dead bodies could hear. So this man is called to prophesy literally, uh, several times across this passage. I think six times we see this call to prophesy. Three times we hear this refrain, thus says the Lord God. And then centrally in the text is the command of the bones, hear the word. Here, God is vividly cementing the life-giving work of his spirit with the proclamation of his word. He's tying the two together. Oh, friends, see this today. See, hear, and believe. Let this vivid scene act like an indelible marker in your mind, a central truth permanently fixed to your mind. God's spirit works through God's Word to give life to God's people. God's Spirit works through God's Word to give life to God's people. Here, the active agent, the instrumental cause, the the means by which life is given through the Spirit, the, the, the seed that germinates the vine, the power that creates the building, the means that God uses To cause his spirit to come and shape hearts. It's it's God's spirit working through God's word to create life. In fact, we know this from our Bibles, don't we? I mean, just go back and think to the very beginning. Back when God first created the world. Hebrews tells us about that moment. And says, by faith we understand that the universe... So the universe is everything... Everything you see and know. The universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God works through his word. That's how powerful his word is. Jonathan Lehman rightly says, God's word is the most powerful force in the universe. It's behind the creation of the entire universe. He says, You and I create with hands and computers and shovels and bulldozers, but not God. God is spirit and he creates by speaking. Or we see this late, we see this really throughout the whole Bible. It's hard to get to a place where you don't see how God is choosing to work through his word as an extension of himself. In in the Psalms, Psalm 119. Or Isaiah, what we heard at the beginning of the service. Did you catch what Mark read for us? For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose." And shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. You see, God's word is effectual. It always accomplishes what it is set out to do. Or consider Acts. You know the story of Acts. It's a wonderful uh, t- uh, story to just go back and read through. And follow how throughout the book of Acts, what, what, just what happens as the word of God is unleashed time and time again it's it's when the word of god is just let loose that god's people are created that life springs up that change happens friends that's how a people are made that's how a church is made a church is formed by the proclamation of god's word a a, a church comes to life through the exposing of god's word in its midst Wherever the word of God spread in the book of Acts, the the church sprung up behind it. And then it's the story of the New Testament as well. It's God's word that gives us life. I think of 1 Peter 1.23. It says that Christians have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. Your new life, your new birth, you being born again, Comes through God's word working in your heart. Jesus tells uh, James tells us that it's by God's own wor- will that He brought us forth by the word of truth. We're brought forth by this word of truth, and then he he goes on to say how it saves us. James says, "Receive with meekness the implanted word, implanted like a like a seed in the soil, which is able to save your souls." Now. Just to clarify, I don't imagine that many of you disagree with what I'm saying right now. In fact, I think that probably 95% of you would already say, yeah, I already knew this. This isn't very new. Uh, But I just want to point out what I'm not saying here is that God's word is important, although that's very true. And I'm not saying here... That God's word has perfect information for you. Although that's also very true. This passage that we're studying in Ezekiel is, is vividly displaying for us that God's word is what you need to come alive. That your hope for spiritual life in any corner of your life is Through God's word working with his spirit. As Michael Horton says, God's word does not merely impart information, it creates life. It's not only descriptive, it's effective. It produces in us worship, obedience, communion, disciples. Church, if we're right to rightly think about our church, at the very center of what should shape us is rightly thinking about how God has chosen to work. He has chosen to work in us, individually and corporately as a body, through his word. So let me just just press this in and just offer five brief applications for us in our body today. Five ways that this transforming power of how God works should shape our lives. Five things that it should shape. Number one, I mean, quite obviously, sermons, right? Right? Do you believe that that this hour is centrally important to your spiritual life and growth? The New Testament teaches this hour as such. We'll we'll get into this in future weeks. That this is one of the, the ways that God works to meet with us is through the preaching of his word. And so, if we are to desire God to work in our midst, we must look to his word to be what's shaping us as we come together. This, by the way, is what's happened with Ezekiel, is it not? He's standing in front of these bones and he's prophesying, he's speaking out the word of God over the dry bones. Everyone that comes to this pulpit should come to primarily and ultimately and fundamentally and centrally preach and expose God's word. That's what they are here to do. We call this expositional preaching, where the, the point of the sermon is to be the point of the text. Where we are merely being exposed to what God says. And now, normally this means that we will, as a church, uh, do what we've been doing with Luke, working through a book of the Bible, just chapter and verse after one another. That way the, the agenda is set by God for what we talk about. We just go back, and instead of following hobby horses that the, the preacher or pastor has we just let God's word dictate week after week after week what we're going to be studying together. Uh, rarely I'll preach a sermon like this one, which is on one passage, but, but still is meant to be guided and directed and controlled by exposing God's word to you. That's what you need. Friends, God's word is what we need to hear explained and interpreted and applied Each and every week. Amen? So whether you stay at this church or you go to another, look for, depend on, ache for a faithful preaching of God's word. Number two, this should shape our worship services. We are to center our services around the word if we want to see life and growth. I'm not here thinking just the sermon. I'm thinking even before we get to the sermon, we sing God's word and truths from his word. We are to hear God's word regularly, just read over us. Scripture tells us this. We are to read God's word together, as we did this morning, responsively. We are to pray prayers that are shaped by God's word, that even use God's word to guide them. Friends, our services should be radically word-centered, if we desire God to work amongst us. Thirdly, this should shape our expectations. We are to expect God's word to change us. I wonder if that's true of you. Now, now certainly, this is true during the Sunday morning sermons. Did you notice back in verse 7 that Ezekiel says, As I prophesied, it was as he spoke the word of the Lord that the sound came from the bones coming to life. Friends, the idea is that he's not even done. He's just beginning to send the word of God out, and as soon as it hits, it starts working. We should expect the same here. Not not because of my ability, as I'm standing here behind this pulpit, but because of the power of God's word. That even right now, as God's word is being preached, that it's landing in our ears, And it's beginning to change us and change how we think and what we adore and and how we will live. Come to the service. Come, Come to your Bible studies. Come to your morning prayer times in God's word with expectation of being changed, of being shaped. Fourthly, this should shape our patience. We are to be patient for God's word to work. It, it never fails to accomplish what God desires for it to accomplish, even when it's hardening hearts. Uh, if God has shown us so clearly that it is, it's His word that works, we as a church should be on guard against running to other things to get results. Like a seed that you, that you put in the ground, it would just be foolish to, to, to rip it up and replace it with a substitute because you don't yet see the results. So First Boynton, as a church, let us not put our hopes in any short-term gimmicks to see spiritual life. Let us just be a a group of happy farmers, happy, patient farmers. I mean, even in your lives, as you speak God's word to one another, as you regularly come and, and hear the word of God, and then you see it go out in your midst, be a farmer that is just ready to wait for 5, 10, 15 years because you know that God's word has promised to work. Lastly, this should shape our conversations, particularly around the word. And what I mean here is that while the sermon and our, our services are certainly primary, they are not the only place where the word of God is to be proclaimed. We'll spend a whole sermon uh, thinking through this later in the month as we go to Ephesians. But we as Christians are meant to hear God's word, and then we're to, meant to go out and we're meant to echo it back and forth to one another. This, uh, this imagery, again, is from Jonathan Lehman. I think it's helpful. He says that God's people, they, they hear the word of God sent out into their midst, and then they just reverberate it back and forth kind of like a, an echo in a canyon where the sound goes out and it's bouncing off one wall to the other, just going about the church. As the sermon is preached, it, you as the people of God act like an echo chamber of God's word among your relationships, applying it to one another's lives, speaking it into one another's lives. So, so very practically, do you bring up the sermon in your conversations each week? Parents, do you talk with your kids about what you've learned? Friends, do do you discuss how to apply what you've heard with others? Or do you act like this moment is meant just for this moment until we return to it seven days later? Do you reverberate God's word in your own life? And not just the sermon, but do you bring up God's word itself into your conversations? Are you known To be somebody that is known to say, this reminds me of this verse. And then maybe even just pause in that conversation long enough to look it up and read it. Friends, God's spirit works through God's word to create life in God's people. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that in the way that you live your lives each day? We should conclude. You know, e- e- Ezekiel here, he stood and he preached. He spoke over dead bones, and God brought a people to life. This is, this is a strange picture. As is, by the way, this moment right now. This doesn't happen very much in our culture. One person standing and just talking for 45 minutes and 200 other of you being very gracious and listening to what I have to say. But, but this strangeness, friends, it's the, the plan of God to work through his word heard in our ears. After all, faith comes not in what we see. Faith doesn't come through visually appealing proof. It's not faith. Scripture says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Whereas one friend likes to say, I think I've shared this before, we live in the age of the ear, not the age of the eye. Our world, yes, and our flesh Yes, we love to see things in order to believe them. I'll believe it when I see it. But but God, God has designed this age of the world, this, this season of the universe that we're in. It's not a long season. He's designed it to be one where we show his glory by trusting him in what we hear. And that's how life starts. That's how growth happens. Hearing his word. God's spirit works through God's word to create life in God's people. So the question is, what kind of church will we be? Where will you look to for spiritual life? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your kindness to us in revealing yourself to us. And we thank you for your wisdom to do that through your powerful word. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us confidence, confidence to believe that your word is sufficient to work in us. Father, we pray that our lives would be utterly shaped by your word. Not just in what we believe, but in our reliance for your word to act in us and among us and through our church. Father, we pray that you would build our church through the word of God. and We pray this in Jesus' name.